Parashat Yitro. Parashat Yitro. So the year, the year is 2000. 2000 was a very, very difficult year. Maybe it was the beginning of 2001. There's a woman named Sarah Blaustein. And she had made Aliyah, I believe, from New Jersey. She lived in Efrat. And she was driving home. It was the beginning of the second intifada. Um, the second intifada, intifada means uprising, where it essentially means is that Arabs were riding all over the country for whatever newest nonsense was bothering them. And... Yeah, and this was... Um, uh, there's a whole discussion about how this started, but not for now. Um, shootings on the road, Molotov cocktails, you know, cells. This is post-Oslo, so you're talking about you know, Arab cells in the territories, uh, you know, battalion size. And uh, this particular day, um, there were two terrorists, and they hid behind uh, uh, on the edge of the highway, and they opened fire on civilian cars. People just coming home from work. Um, I drive home every day uh, on this exact stretch of road. Um, and Sarah Blaston was in the car, and she was shot, and she was killed. And how did I hear the news of Sarah Blaustein, um, who I had met, but I didn't really know her well. But she was apparently at Sadekis. That's You can look her up online. Um, her sister had made aliyah to Israel sometime earlier. And uh, their daughter, Aliza, you know, Sarah Blaustein's niece, was one of my daughter's closest friends. And so my wife gets a call. I'm still at work. My wife gets a call from Aliza's mom. You know, can my aunt come over? Aliza is beside herself. Her aunt was just killed. And she's uh, 10 years old. So my wife, you know, sort of course. So she tells my aunt, look, you know, Aliza's aunt was just killed in a terrorist attack. And she wants to, she wants to know if you could come over. My aunt said, you know, sure. And my aunt knew her. I mean, she was the aunt of her closest friend. And so, so Dorit drove her over. And when Aliza saw the car pull up, she came running out of the house. And Mayan jumped out of the car and ran to Aliza. And Aliza grabs Mayan in an embrace. And the two of them break down crying. And my wife carries that image with her to this day. Two 10-year-old girls. That's about as off a balance a thing as you can imagine. Sobbing hysterically because a woman, a civilian, just driving home from work, was murdered. That night, her Levaya was in the Gush Cemetery in Kvaratian. And, you know, we hadn't had an incident like this in quite a while. It made all the news. So everybody turned up. Uh, they estimate about 10,000 people came to the funeral. It poured out onto the highway. I mean, there was no. And of course, we were there. Being at a Levi at night is already a disturbing phenomenon. Um, when they brought the kever in, you know, we'd been waiting 10, 20 minutes, um, half an hour. The whole crowd went quiet. To hear 10,000 people in total silence, all you could hear was the sobbing of the family. And I was standing behind a guy, Shal Goldstein, who was the mayor of Kvaratian. He was the mayor of Gushetian, which is a prominent position, you know, politician. And uh, I happened to be standing behind him. It was dark. He wasn't on a dais. He wasn't in the spotlight. He wasn't giving a speech. It wasn't a political moment. He was just a, a Jewish man in a crowd of 10,000 people, mayor. And uh, 
I don't think anybody could see this, but I happened to be standing right next to him. And he started crying. And of course, I was crying. My wife was crying. And I remember thinking, that's so powerful. Like, that's not a... Like, when you see a politician cry, you're never really sure. When a guy's standing in the dark and nobody can see him, that image stuck with me. You know? Why do I tell you that story? Because, because this week's Parsha carries a, f- a powerful idea that gets missed. And when you think of Parsha Yitro, what do you obviously think of? Sarasadibos. This is the Parsha where somehow we experience Hashem in a way that's so real, that's so overpowering, you can't even handle it. Like, like you can debate. You know, how do you know Hashem exists? If you stood at Har Sinai, you didn't have that question. You were done with that question. Right? It's like you can wonder whether love exists until you're standing under your chuppah, until your first child is born, and then you don't have that question anymore. And, 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 and to hear and to see sound and this, the spectacle of Har Sinai. And it's interesting. How, is it, how does Hashem appear to the Jewish people? Anybody remember? Physically. How is it described? Hashem appears in a cloud. It's an interesting question. Why does Hashem appear in a cloud? Why doesn't Hashem appear in a lightning bolt? You know? By the way, if you look at movies where they want to show something mystical or spiritual, they very often use clouds. I've always wondered whether they have this intuitive understanding you know, that dates back to that original image of Harsina. And there are lots of powerful discussions here. Now, if you could start the story of Harsinai, of the Aseret that he brought. I mean, this is why we got out of Egypt, to receive the Torah. This is the apex of the spiritual experience in world history. An entire people at the foot of Harsinai, so united that the Pasuk says, Vayichan, and he camped, right? Instead of Vayachanu, they camped, right? And Rashi quotes the famous Ma'amar Chazal, Ke'ish Echad, Echad, there was a moment in time where the Jewish people were so united, they were like one body. And that is the unity that brings Hashem into the world. Nothing brings Hashem into the world, the goodness of Hashem into the world, like the goodness of unity. Okay. So this is a big parsha. So how does this parsha start? So I would think this, you know, I, I mean, I could think of lots of good beginnings for the parsha. You know? Vahi Hashem be'anan. Right? There'll be mountains and lightning. You know, Moshe could come down riding on a lightning bolt. Ah, that'd be stark. Then we give a shear what's a lightning bolt and why is Moshe riding on it and why is he not carrying it? And I don't know. But that's not what it says. This week's Parsha, it, it doesn't even start Moshe Rabbein. This should be Moshe's Parsha. It's called Parsha Yitro. Who was Yitro? Yitro was the Pope of the non Jewish world. You know, he, he was a, he was a mid, he was a kohen midyan. The pasuk tells me by kohen midyan. Torah doesn't hide this, right? It's like announcing, you know, they they build the base of mikdash, and it's the dedication of the base of mikdash, and we invite, you know, Pope Christopher to give the opening speech. You know, you could imagine how many people be in the back throwing rocks. Like it wouldn't be a so yitro. Why is this parshat yitro? So what did yitro do? What was it that Yitro did? Anybody know? Yitro... Said justice. Pardon? He said justice. Hmm. 
before that, what was the most powerful thing Yitro did? Yitro listened. Think about this. Do you know that there is no mitzvah in the Torah to listen? Even though there are psukim that seem mitzvah-esque, that's a word I just made up, right? 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 But there's no mitzvah to listen. Listening is something we have to do on our own. Right? Vayishma Yitro. Okay. By the way, the verb lishmoa appears seven times in Parshat Yitro. Okay? Um, I think we've spoken about this before. Numbers are very significant. For example, take the Parsha of Balak. Anybody here of Bar Mitzvah Parsha of Balak? No? Balak Mitzvah, yeah? What's the verb of Parsha of Balak? Fayar. How many times does Ri'iyah, seeing, appear in Parsha of Balak? Seven times. It's not an accident. The theme of this week's Parsha is Vaishma, is to listen. Now that's an interesting question. What does it mean to listen? So let's hear, Vaishma Yitro, what does Yitro hear? We spoke about this once, but what does Yitro hear? Vaishma Yitro, Kohen Midian, Choten Moshe, Et kol asher asa Hashem, asher asa alokim lemoshe uli Yisrael amo. Yitro, who was the Kohen of Midian, hears, right, and he's the Choten of Moshe. I saw, by the way, a really sweet vart from Effie Bluestone's great-grandfather, great-great-great-grandfather. So I think your mother sent this. When you started the year, it gave me a safer. Parshavua Sefer, right? It's really for the yeshiva, but I hijacked it. And um, he was a Holocaust survivor, no? Pardon? No, sure, okay, you got to do your homework, right? So, anyway, it's a really beautiful Sefer. And I happened to look up today, Yitro. He had a great chap. He says, you know, sometimes a guy gets married, you know? And he gets married to the son of a big veer. You know, Bill Gates uh, converts to Judaism, and, uh, you know, Yosef Meir is learning in the mirror, and he's Zochet to Bill Gates' daughter, right? So what does everybody say, right? His father-in-law is Bill Gates. But then he's stark, and he learns, and Bill supports him, and eventually becomes a Bill Tamachacham. He's a Rashiv of the mirror. And then what do they say? Right? Then Bill Gates says, that's my son-in-law, you know? The Rashiv of the mirror. I'm the Rashiv of the mirror's father-in-law. So the Pasuk here implies both. On the one hand, Yitro is Kohen Midian. On the other hand, he became Choten Moshe. You know, when Moshe got married, he was the son-in-law of Yitro. He was living in Midian. He was privileged because he was the son-in-law of Yitro. Now Yitro is privileged because he's, he's the father-in-law of Moshe. Okay, so Yitro hears, Et kol asher asa, right? Elohim Moshe el Yisrael amo, ki otzi Hashem et Yisrael mitzrayim. Yitro hears everything that Bnei Yisrael did that Hashem did, that he took us out of Egypt. So Rashi quotes the Gemara in Zvachim, right? Gemara in Zvachim on Kuf Tezayin says the following, right? Oh, this is the wrong, it's Menachos, sorry. It's not Menachos. Here we go. Um, Second. What did Yitro hear that he came and when was Gaia? Right? There's a day on the Gemara that says that Yitro converted. There's another day that says he went back. We're not going to go there right now. And there's a whole debate. Rabbi Shua says, Melchemus Amalek. Rabbi Lezer Amudai says, Matan Torah. There's another day. Uh, Rabbi Lezer says, Kriyas Yamsuf. 
Right? So there's an obvious question. Rashi, by the way, interestingly enough, does not quote all the opinions. Rashi quotes only two. What was it that Yitro heard? He heard of the splitting of the sea and the war against Amalek. Now that's interesting. Rashi quotes the Gemara, but he doesn't quote the entire Gemara. So why is he quoting only these two opinions? When he's quoting the Gemara, he should quote all the opinions. So Rashi must feel these are the primary possibilities. Those are two pretty big divergent possibilities. One of them I understand, Kriyas Yamsuf. I understand that if the sea splits and the entire Egyptian army is vanquished, that's a pretty impressive happening. So Yitro comes, right? But the other, he hears about the War of Amalek. Why would he come about the War of Amalek? The War of Amalek isn't exactly such a great thing. The Jewish people are attacked. People are killed. It's bad. They almost lose. In the end, they win. I'm not saying it's not a happy ending. You know, they don't finish the job. Amalek runs off. They're still going to spend a long time trying to finish off with Amalek. You can make a case for saying that that story is the, is the seed that will eventually spew forth the Holocaust. Salvechik believes that any nation that rises up to destroy the Jewish people simply because they're Jews, for no logical reason, there was no reason Amalek had to attack us, that's the spawn of Amalek. And he believed that, the, the, that Nazi Germany was the spawn of Amalek. I'm not going to get into the practical ramifications of that. So why is that a big deal? Why does Yitro come? But the bigger question is, what do you mean, what did Yitro hear? The Pasuk says what Yitro hear. Yitro, Kohen Midian, Choten Moshe, Et Kol Asher Yitro heard that the Jewish people, that Hashem took the Jewish people out of Egypt. Why does the Gemara ask that question? Right? Okay. So, one way of understanding that question, Rav Nevensal in his Sichos uh, for Sefer Shmot, says the Gemara's question is not what did Yitro hear that he came. Right? Everybody heard. The question is, what did Yitro hear that made him come? Everybody heard that the Egyptian army was vanquished. Everybody heard. It couldn't be. You could debate whether you believe the story. You could imagine my opinion. Hashem splits the sea. The Egyptian army is vanquished. Word's going to get around. Rachav, 40 years later, talking to Yoshua, still says, Namogu, that the Canaanites tremble at the Jewish people's coming because they remember what happened in Mitzrayim. Everybody knew about this. What's amazing about the story is that nobody changed. Hashem splits the sea. The greatest empire in the, first, greatest empire in the world is, 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 is vanquished. And nobody changed. Life just goes on. You know what the most incredible thing about the Six Day War is? Most incredible thing? Most incredible thing about the birth of the State of Israel? Is that there's five million Jews in America and they're still sitting there. There's only one person in the entire world who said, if this is going on, something has to change. That's, that's a remarkable question. So I want to know, what changed Yitro? Okay. So there are two opinions Rashi quotes. One is that Hashem split the sea. The other is Milchemet Amalek. And I want to quote this exactly. Okay? Milchemet Amalek. It doesn't say the vanquishing of Amalek. It just says the war against Amalek. So first let's talk about Kriyas Yamsuf. What does Kriyas Yamsuf represent? Okay? What do you think? What does it mean? Why did Yitro see that the sea was split and that caused him to come? Yeah? The intrusive illusion. Pardon? The intrusive illusion. 
Ah, right? Kriyas Yamsuf is the ultimate example, right? That nature's illusion that the world, that the, real, the reality of the world is only that Hashem runs the world. That, that, that if Hashem runs the world, what's the difference if there's a miracle that a sea exists or that a sea splits? It's the same miracle, right? Nature doesn't stand in our way, right? If, 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 if we don't subscribe to the law of nature, if a people came into the world that demonstrated that Hashem runs the world, then Yitro's entire life is a mistake. Then idolatry makes no sense. That he has to come and see. He has to, something has to change. The world's changed. That I understand. What about Mohammed Amalek? That's really interesting. So let's think about what happens when Amalek attacks the Jewish people. Right? They, they attack the Nechashalim Echarecha, right? They, right? they come Baderech. Now what's interesting about Amalek is what would have happened? Let's think about the moment. When does Amalek attack? They attack after Kriyas Yamsuf. The sea is split. The Egyptians are vanquished. Nature has taken a back seat to a new reality. Hashem runs the world. What should happen in the world right now? Like, think about it. Let me ask you a question. What would it take for the entire world? What would it take for the entire world to recognize that Hashem runs the world? Like, what miracle would have to happen for everybody to get it? You know what? Let's just take the Jews. They say there's 13 million Jews in the world. Okay? That's what they say. I don't know. I've heard 13 and a half, 14, 13, 12... Is it halachic Jews? I don't know. This is, that's the number, more or less. About half of those Jews are sitting in Israel. The largest Jewish community in the world is now in Israel. That actually has halachic ramifications. Okay. So let's say, best case scenario, there's 7 million Jews in the world. What would have to happen for those 7 million Jews to come home? What miracle could we conjure up that would make every last Jew say, it's time to come home? There are two possibilities. One is, you know, Camp Auschwitz, Los Angeles. That's a scary thought. Things get so bad, they're throwing Jews into ovens again. The Israeli army lands in New York and says, if you make the plane, we'll take you home. That's one possibility. Like, there could be a reality. By 1940, if the state of Israel had existed, and Germany had said, if you want to get out, we'll let you go, every single Jew in Europe would have come home. Right? That seems to be the case. What about the flip side? Right? I didn't come to Israel because I was worried about gas chambers. I didn't come to Israel because I was afraid of anti-Semitism. I came to Israel because once you start thinking about the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, like, how could you not come? So what would that reality have to be? It would have to be an absolute certainty that this is what we're meant to do. An absolute certainty that Hashem runs the world. It would become impossible not to put on a pair of tefillin in the morning. In the morning. In fact, you wonder whether it would mean that we would have to lose our freedom to choose. Interesting. So what happens when Amalek comes? You know, the fact that the Jews leave Egypt, which is itself an interesting question, did the Jews really want to go, is understandable. If rivers turn to blood, and lice are, are, are everywhere, and fire and water are mixing in hail that makes no sense, and wild animals are killing all the all the, uh, the, the cattle of the Egyptians and leaving you alone, and so on and so forth. And then there's a genetic disease that attacks by, by, by order of birth, 
and it only attacks Egyptians, down to even the Egyptian animals, at a certain point you've got to wake up and say, okay, it's time to go. Like the Jews didn't follow Hashem into the desert because they, they had this great faith. They followed Hashem into the desert because of course you're going to follow. How could you not follow Hashem into the desert? They had no choice. And, and that was about to be compounded in Harsinai. So, so the world was ready to know that Hashem existed. And then came Amalek. Amalek introduces or reintroduces the concept of doubt. Because if Amalek can attack the Jewish people, then maybe Hashem is not all-powerful. The gematria of Amalek is suffix. That's exactly what Amalek brought into the world. The fact that the Jewish people follow Amalek, follow Hashem anyway, even though now it's not so clear, even though they can choose not to, even though there's a possibility to see a world that isn't run by Hashem, that's what Amalek wants to bring back onto the table, that fascinates Yitro. Okay? We're looking very often, I certainly was when I was in high school, we're looking for a world that's driven by a God that cannot be disputed. We want to prove, anybody here have that, I want to, can you prove God exists? Get to yeshiva, you go into Rabbi Aaron's class, like, oh man, he's going to prove God exists, right? That's what you want. You want to know with absolute certainty. You want to be able to run into your friend and, I don't know, Brandeis, and, and, and they say, how do you know God exists? They say, here it is. Here's the recipe. This is, I'm going to do it. I'm going to prove to you that God exists, right? I don't know that that lasts. I don't know that that's real. I don't know that, 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 that we're meant to live in a world where we have no choice. I think what's powerful in this world is that you can't prove it. You have to take a leap of faith. If, if you'll only get married when you can actually prove that she's the right girl, you'll never get married. You cannot know before you get married. I got news for you. You can't even know 30 years after you get married. The leap just gets smaller and smaller. But it's still a leap, right? I don't know that in this world we're ever meant to know with absolute certainty, right? There comes a point, right? So that's the first issue. The first issue is Yitro hears something in Melchemet Amalek, and he hears something in Kriyas Yamsuf. He hears that there is a possibility of absolute certainty, and he hears there's a possibility of doubt. Those are two, those are two perspectives that are antithetical to each other. I think that's why Rashi quotes them. They're the two different worlds that you can live in. And I wonder, and I'm not going to answer, I'm going to leave you to think about this. I wonder which one is better. I wonder which one is better. Is it better to live in a world of absolute certainty? Or is it more powerful to live in a world where you can never be absolutely certain, but you don't need to be? You know? How can a Jew be absolutely certain after the Holocaust? How could you possibly be absolutely certain after the Holocaust? But why do you need to be absolutely certain? You know? I don't know. Was I absolutely certain when I got married? Didn't even think about the question. It just made the most sense. You know? How do you make the leap small? That's a different question. So that's one. But there is a second idea. And this second idea is equally powerful. Right? This parsha begins with Yitro because Yitro understands that the most important quality a person can have in this world is to learn, to listen. Now what does listening mean? Listening is not just, did you hear what he said? Listening is to be able to hear where someone's at without him having to tell you. If I'm listening to the people in my life, I can feel their pain, I can sense their joy without their ever telling me. That's powerful. Yitro teaches us 
that before we can receive Torah in our life, we have to learn to listen. It's one of the most powerful Jewish ideas. And I'll give you an example. This is a phenomenal example. There is a Gemara. Excuse me. There's a Gemara in Chulin. A friend of mine first introduced me to this Gemara many years ago. Baruch Sturman, for those of you who know, Mr. Kailas. Um, and it stuck with me. There's a Gemara in Chulin and Dafkufiyot. Listen to this Gemara. This is an amazing Gemara. Okay? Besura, this is on Dafkufiyot Amaral. Okay? And I'll share with you this Gemara. I'll make this point and then we'll, we'll call it a name. Besura lo achli kachli. There's a halacha known as kal, kaf chet lamed. A kal is an udder. It's an interesting halachic question, okay? If I have a cow, cow is meat, right? In the udder of the cow is milk. Now, when I milk the cow and the milk comes out of the udder, that milk is milk, right? And I can no longer eat that milk with the meat, even though the milk comes from the meat. Okay. But if you shecht an animal and the animal dies, now the animal is kosher. So what if there's milk in the udder? If the milk is in the udder when the animal is shechted, then that's not really milk. It didn't come out of the udder. It's part of the animal. And that's a whole discussion. Okay? Can you eat the chal? So we paskin for various reasons that we don't drink the milk. What about the udder? The udder is soaked in milk. It's meat and milk. Can you take the udder soaked in milk, cook it, and eat it? You're cooking milk and meat. But it's chal. So there's machlokas in the Gemara, right? So the Gemara says... In Surah, right, there were two prominent yeshivot at the day, in the beginning of the Babylonian period, Surah and Pupadita, okay, southern Iraq. In Surah, they did not eat the khal. They're machmir, you know, we don't eat khal, we don't eat this stuff, right? But Pupadita, achli kachli, but in Pupadita, they used to eat udders. They were udder eaters, okay? Okay. Rami bar tamri. To have a Rami bar right? Some say he was Rami bar We'll call him Rami. Rami, right, is from Pupadita. And he ends up, he's a guy from, from, um, from Pupadita. Remember, Pupadita are makil. They're lenient. They, don't eat, they eat khals, right? You know, it's good food, right? Um, and, but he ended up in Pupadita, an Erevim Kippur. Okay? Afkinu kule kachlinu. Now, everybody's throwing out their khals. Why are they throwing out khals in Erebium Kippur? Because what's the mitzvah in Erebium Kippur? They have a big suda. So how do you have a big suda? You have a big meal. You shecht an animal. You shecht the animal. You're in Pupadita. We're machmer. We throw out the khals. This guy shows up. He's from, he's from Pupadita. They eat khals. He's in khal heaven. He's going around picking up the khals. It's like going to Yeshiva with a machmer not to have burgers bar. And they're just putting away their burger bar. Ah, so you, yeah. It's you have to eat the burgers bar. Okay, fine, right? So he's So he goes and he grabs some khal and he's eating, he's having khal sandwiches. So the Frum Patrol catches him eating khal. He's in Pumpadita, he's in Sura. We don't eat khal. It's Erev Yom Kippur. How could you eat khal? Right? You know, you, you come from Efrat and you go to Meir and you know the Ramah Paskins that you don't have to eat glat, right? It's only a chumrah. But you're in Meshar and they all eat uh, glat. So they catch you eating non glat food. So they get upset. So they bring you in front of a barla. Okay. Amrle, Amaiti Avid Hachi. So Rav Chizda, who apparently is the Rosh Yeshiva of Surah, he's King Machmir, 
He says, what are you doing this? How could you do this? How could you eat chal? You know? I come from the place of Rav Yehuda. Rav Yehuda was the Rosh Hashiv and Pumbedita. And we eat chal. Don't you know, don't you keep chumra-itis? That you keep the chumras of where you come from and the chumras of where you go, anywhere you could be machmir? Didn't you hear when you go to yeshiva, the most important question is, are you machmir? And if you stay short of bed, it changes to, you machmir? And if you, if you become smicha, you machmir, you machmir, you machmir, you machmir, let's be machmir, right? Okay. <laughs> Right? So, now, now, Rami Bartamri, he was a sharp cookie. And Rav Chista says, you know, we keep chumras. And not only that, but we keep the chumra of keeping the chumras. So if you come from Pupadita, you have to keep the chumras because you're in Surah. He says, I walked outside of Tchum. I walked 2,000 amos outside the village. I could eat. I'm not, I'm not in the Makam. Ah, ah, a good, a good smara. So Rav Chizda is not done with him. He says, well, well how, did you, how did you heat the khal? Amar Leib They were twigs. Rashi says they were twigs at the side of the vineyard. And I took some of the twigs and I used them, made a little fire, and I cooked my khal. Amar Leib Maybe that's a vineyard that belongs to a non-Jew. And the twigs are part of the vineyard. And therefore, you're not allowed to eat them, just like you can't eat grapes from a non-Jew because it could be a vodazara, right? Dilma miyayin nesach. Have you? Amalei la'achah shnei masach chodesh, have No, no, I saw they were last year's twigs. Ah, I'm so from, right? Now we're having a machlokas here. It's stark, right? V'dilma degezel, have How do you know that the Bailim had yeyush on them, gave up on them? Maybe they were saving the twigs. Maybe you're a gazlan. You know, you could be machmir, right? Amalei, yeyus bailim havi, the kadchu bechilfe. Right? No, no, the bailim, the owners, there's a concept in Bab Masiyah, yeyush, that if a person loses something, he gives up on it, he has no hope of getting it back. So yeyush, lomidat havi yeyush, that's what he said. If, you're not stealing something, if, if you lose a dollar bill in Times Square, you basically give up on it, you don't have to worry if you find a dollar bill in Times Square, the owner you're taking from, right? And for other reasons. Right? So this, this, these twigs were old and they had mold in them. Rashi says it was like moldy, green moldy. So because of that, I'm sure they gave up on you. Now, I'm, I'm still from. Chazia, and Arachiz did not done with it. Chazia, Dolo, have a manach tefillin. He sees the guy isn't wearing tefillin. Now remember, we today, we only wear tefillin shachas. Right? Because we're not on a level. But they used to wear tefillin all day. Meikar din, la lacha, he's supposed to wear tefillin all day. It's like wearing tzitzis, Right? So the guy sees this Rami character, it's Erev Yom Kippur, he's not wearing tefillin. Amalei, my time alone minchas tefillin, why are you not wearing tefillin? You know, it's like the guy shows up, you have mechlokism and says, wait, tzitzis, right? You know, it's like, you know the tzitzis check? The Rebbe says, I love you, kind of thing, right? Yeah? So he's doing the tzitzis check. Amalei, Amalei, chole me'ayin have No, 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 I'm sick. I have like, I don't know, Crohn's, a digestive disease, Right? The armor of Yehuda, person who has a digestive issue, a certain type of illness, makes you go to the bathroom all the time. It's not covered to wear your tefillin. You have to take them off. Maybe it's not covered in bris. So you're part of wearing tefillin because you have to go to the bathroom all the time. Right? He wasn't, he's sort of, his disease, the guy's not wearing strings. Right? He's not wearing tzitzis. 
Amale, my time of late lachude. He says, why are you not wearing tzitzis? Amale, talit she'ulahi. It's borrowed. It's not my shirt. It's a borrowed shirt. For Amar of Yehuda, talit she'ula. Kol shloshim yom, p'turim in tzitzis. If we don't pass in this way, by the way, but if you borrow somebody's shirt, right? Me'ikar <coughs> din, the mitzvah of tzitzis, is if you have a four-cornered garment, you have to put tzitzis on it. So he sees he's wearing a shirt, there's no tzitzis. He says, where's your tzitzis? He says, well, it's a borrowed shirt. So Allah is, it's like if you go to a hotel, it doesn't have a mezuzah. <coughs> so we paskin for 30 days, you don't have to put a mezuzah up. If you're living in a hotel for the summer, you have to put a mezuzah on the door. Same thing with uh, tzitzis. I borrowed somebody's shirt, you know, I don't have my own. So I'm not chayven tzitzis according to Rav Yehuda. Right? So while they're having this debate, I too Allahu gavra. They bring a guy in who's been caught not being respectful to his parents. You're going to like this one. Not respectful to his parents. Now, Rav Chizda is the Rosh Hashiv of Surah. He's also the Av Bezdin. Right? They start to give him makos. Right? You don't give such a person makos, but you can give him makos marantus. You give him like a Bezdin, like lashes, let's say. Right? So this Rabbi Bar Tamre. You know, this uh, schnook from Pompadita. He says, what are you doing? Leave him alone. Detanya. Because <coughs> we know it says in a brisa, right? Kol mitzvah sasei shematan tzchara betzida ain bezdin shalmata muzharnalei. In any case where there's a mitzvah sasei, where the schar is given in the pasuk along with the mitzvah, a bezdin is not allowed to judge a person for such a case. Right? So it says by kibur aveim, leman tarichun yamecha al adamah, Right? It's a schar that's given. So therefore, according to the price, you shouldn't do business, shouldn't be judging him, shouldn't be giving him an onish. Now forget about that case. In other words, this guy's stuck. He's bucky in Brysos. So Rav Chizda says, oh. He says, Chazina lach de harifa tuva. I see you're a sharp guy. Look at you quoting the Shittim Kubetzas. Whoa. Amalei, he have yet ba'atrei de Rav Yehuda. Achavina lach churfai. He says, if you would come to Pumpadita, right, where Rav Yehuda is, I'll show you Stark. I'll show you Kharifas, as the Gemara says. Now let's think about this Gemara. What does it have to do with Yitro? You have to understand this image. Who's this guy? He's walking around on Erev Yom Kippur. He has no tefillin. He has no tzitzis. He's wearing a borrowed shirt. He's picking up udders off the street walking out of town to find some twigs to cook them. He's the equivalent of the homeless bum. But that's what he is. And the image of Chizda has is, he's a bum. He's, you know, who is this guy? No tefillin, no tzitzis, eating chal. You know, he's relying on the reform kashra certificate. I don't know, right? What are we going to do with him? Then he gets into a bait with him. He sees this guy, he knows Torah. Don't judge a book by its cover. Okay. But there's a deeper thing that we're missing here. Let me ask you a question. It's Erev Yom Kippur. This guy is walking around in a borrowed shirt, picking up udders from people's garbage. And they haul him into Bezdin? Nobody invites him home for dinner? It's Erev Yom Kippur. There's something seriously wrong. That's why Yishmai Yitro. That's why this parsha starts with Yitro. 
because we're about to get the Aserus of Dibros, and we've got this image in our head that Moshe Rabbeinu is the greatest that ever was. That he's going to bring Torah down, he's going to talk to Akash Baruch Hu. We have this image that Kedusha and Godless greatness is, is Moshe Rabbeinu on the mountain with the Luchos. Understand this whole story starts with a Kohen Midyan. That's the equivalent of a guy who walks in with a cross on his shirt. Don't let the bombastic display of Torah Misenai blind you to the fact that the Torah has to be down here before it's up there. The Torah that Hashem writes, the Luchos Hashem writes, they don't last. They get broken. What lasts? The Torah that we write. And Torah gets given when Moshe comes down off the mountain. That's the message of Yitra. That's what it means to learn to listen. You know? To see beyond the borrowed shirt, beyond the earrings, beyond the haircut, beyond, you know, whatever. As much as we make jokes. On the one hand, here we are in yeshiva. And it's true that we carry a certain responsibility. Like, we did a number on you guys. Because now you're B'nai Torah. And you are representing Torah, and people will look at you at B'nai Torah. And so you have a responsibility to carry yourself as such. You just have to be really careful that while we're spending this year sort of bringing Torah into our life, right, that, that we don't get so full of that image of Torah that we forget that Kedusha is to be found everywhere, you know? By the way, it's amazing. What does Yitro then do, this, this Kohen Midyan? He comes to Moshe Rabbeinu, he says, you're doing it all wrong. You're messing this up. By the way, pshat in the Torah is that this happens after Harsinai, without getting into why. Yitro leaves, whatever. But the Torah puts it before Harsinai. Because this message precedes our ability to receive Torah. You know what the greatest part of this is? You're Moshe Rabbeinu, you've been talking to God, you split the sea, and some coin midgen granted your father-in-law comes and tells you you got to do it all differently. You know what Moshe's amazing gift is? He actually listens. He listens. Some shnu comes into Gush, tells of Lechazin, you're doing it all wrong. And he listens. That's amazing. Right? This Parsha is all about learning to listen. And I think maybe that's why Hashem comes Be'anan. We don't see Hashem. We have to hear Hashem's presence. When you say Shema, what do you do? You cover your eyes. Because seeing creates illusion. I think this is reality. I cover my eye because this isn't reality. Reality is much deeper than that. Reality is not how you look. Reality is who you are. You know, reality is not how big the building is. It's how special the people inside of it are. And so on and so forth. You know? Um, 3,000 years ago, the world changed, but the world wasn't listening. 70, 80 years ago, the world was changing, but the world wasn't listening. Today, we're living in a world that's changing. And the question is, are we listening? And that's how Parsha Sitra begins. So Hashem should bless us all that we get to slow down and we get to listen. And we get to think and we allow ourselves to change in whatever way we're meant to. Shut up, shut up.